but you might consider that a larger life is stalking you, a purpose is stalking you and has been for some time. It's been courting you, reaching out to you, maybe since you were a child, trying to get you to pay attention. And it, it's in, there's messages in our dream and our conversations with the land. There's messages in our bodies. And the practice is, can I get quiet enough and open enough to listen? Hi, I'm Brian Pearson. You are in the cave. We were born before the wind. Also younger than the sun. And our bonnet boat was one as we sailed into the mystic. The Mystic Cave is a sanctuary for the seeker. Stories, conversations, and reflections about the soulful journey on the other side of conventional religion. Welcome. Some of us, when we think of yoga, picture impossible pretzel-like poses performed by youthful people impossibly more fit than we will ever be. But there is just a small chance that we would be missing the point. Yoga comes from an ancient Sanskrit word meaning to unify. It refers not just to poses, that would be specifically asana yoga, but more deeply to a way of being in the world, mindful, embodied, and in mystical communion with, well, everything. Rebecca Wildbear is a soul guide, a wilderness therapist, and a yoga instructor. Her new book, Wild Yoga, invites us in to a soulful practice that engages the intelligence of our bodies, reconnects us to the earth, and draws us toward our purpose in these troubled times. Here is our conversation, which begins with Rebecca reading from the first chapter of her book, Listen to the Intelligence of Your Body. The pool appears on the beach at low tide. I immerse myself and alternate between floating in its calm waters and sitting on the sandy bottom. Mesmerized, I gaze at the waves crashing on nearby rocks. The sea expands to the horizon and the sun shines on the water. Pelicans fly by in a V. Some swoop down and dive for fish. The breeze smells of salt. I speak to the ocean. You are beautiful. I love you. What can I give you? A response arises from the spontaneous movements of my body. I surrender to the tide pool's ebb and flow, gently moving back and forth. I play with balancing on my hands in crow pose, bakasana, squatting, I place my hands on the sand and bring my knees onto the back of my arms. I come onto my tippy toes and balance as my feet rise. I hold the pose until I fall, splashing into the water and onto the sand. Wading into the waist deep water, I go vertical and stand on my hands in handstand. My head is underwater. I fall, landing with a gentle splash. I feel called to the rocks at the edge of the pool. Falling on them while doing poses would hurt. I admire their solidity. They hold their place amid ever-changing currents. I climb atop one and stand in tree and then dancer. Both are balancing poses. It is challenging to do these poses on a rock while waves are rolling in. In tree pose, I shift my weight onto one leg. Slowly, I place the sole of the opposite foot onto the inner thigh of my standing leg. Then I move into tree pose on the opposite leg. 
In dancer, I again shift my weight onto one leg. Lifting the back heel of the opposite leg towards my buttocks, I bend my knee, pull my back heel up toward the sky, and reach forward with my opposite hand. I have done these poses many times on solid ground. Remaining steady on the rocks, surrounded by the chaos of waves, strengthens my capacity to find balance. Each particular being I am drawn to, tree, water, rock, inspires me to experience it more intimately, and I respond differently to each. For example, when the ocean calls me, I enter the surf and dive under the crashing waves. Once I am out deep enough in the middle of rolling waves, I float perpendicular to them, offering myself. As they move over me, tiny bubbles emerge after each one breaks. The bubbles touch my skin, caressing me. After a while, I swim back to the shore and step into the tide pool, and then I climb back onto the rock. Soon I find myself in a wild yoga flow, moving from tide pool to sand to ocean to rock. First, I listen to what each place wants to show me. Then my body moves in response. The tide pool rock, sand, and ocean take me in. They receive me. Thank you, Rebecca. The, um, your book is filled with sensuous, evocative descriptions, just like that. And I want to come back and, and talk about that one. But first, I, want, I, I need to ask you this. You've spent your work life so far working with people getting them to talk. So as a therapist, listening to people's dreams, as a wilderness guide, in all the ways that you've been working with people, it seems to me it's mainly to give them an opportunity to explore their lives. What was it like to write a book where you're doing all the talking? It's, it's kind of like when I guide, I do speak and teach things or say things at certain points. And a lot of times when I do it, I have a rough idea of what I, I want to talk about. But a lot of times it comes spontaneously from the muse because I'm in nature, I'm connected, and I'm, I'm kind of feeling like the guiding is coming almost through me. And I love that feeling. It feels like being utilized by some kind of higher power that moves through me. And writing is kind of the same as that, except for I'm in front of a computer, you know, and it, there's a keyboard and I'm getting whispered what to say and what to write. And I'm just, you know, typing away, trying to get it all down. Well, there, there is a flow. And, and several times you talk in the book about kind of yielding to where the muse wants you to go. Now, the book has a structure. You have a sense of being carried along for the reader, but there is a beautiful flow to the book. Images lead to thoughts, lead to ideas, lead back to images. But I want to talk about this, the, the, the piece you just read to us um, at the top. So as I listened, as I first read that and then listened to you reading it, it happened all over again. Two things... I found were happening within me. One was, it was evoking my own memories of my kind of feral relationship with the land where I have rolled in the surf, and not just as a child, but as an adult, just as you're describing when I lived on the West Coast, and when I would clamber to the top of rocky headlands, and that all of those memories were brought back to me in a kind of a rush as I would read or hear you read uh, that piece. So that's part of it was the evocation of memory. But the other thing was an introduction that you were providing of a way of engaging intentionally, bodily, mindfully with the natural world. And in this passage specifically, naming yoga poses as ways of, uh, of connecting with, with the earth. Is that more or less your purpose in the book? Yeah, I think that's that's definitely a big part of it. Um, in, in a way, you know, the original yogis made poses with animal names. Um, to, it, it seems like my guess is it was probably the intent of original yogis to bring people into their wild body to like be like, hey, I'm not a I'm not just a head. I'm I have a whole body that can be in conversation by doing those animal poses and. And also yoga has always been about the relationship to the world. In other words, my journey is really not separate from the world. It's, it's part of a conversation. And I, 
bring back those, I think, fundamental elements into a conversation while also bringing the earth more deeply into it and intentionally into it. That is, you know, that is a big relationship and an important relationship that is often, it seems like minimized. So a big part of this is coming into our wild nature and deepening our relationship with the earth. Yeah. And I want to talk more about that. I was surprised just because of the book's title that it was not a kind of an exploration of 127 yoga poses. It was, I have those books and they intimidate me because when I use them without a class, just on my own, I fall down a lot. And, uh, and so I, they sit on the shelf, largely unused. Even though your book is called Wild Yoga, it's about yoga in the broadest and deepest sense, even though you do introduce us to specific poses at the end of each chapter. But tell Tell me a little bit about that wider sense of of unity, which we gather from yoga in its deepest sense. Yeah, um, I would I would just agree with what you said. Um, I think asana is an important part of yoga, so that's why it's included. Those but are the it's poses, also, yeah, the yeah. specific poses. Yeah, a lot of times in our world, yoga gets confused for yoga asana. People say yoga yeah. and it's automatically means yoga asana, but yoga asana is just the postures of yoga. Yeah. And, the, and there, then there's everything else. And that has often gotten lost. And so I'm doing my own version, not, not so much from the ancient scriptures, but my own version of other important elements, but including the, the body, like the body is part of it. And those poses are valuable. And I do think um, one pose is helpful coming into one pose fully when it's imbued with a lot of meaning. Um, as I did throughout the whole chapter and, and just going into it. And it also, it's not overwhelming, like, oh gosh, memorize these 127 poses. It's like, oh, what if I just go down into child's pose? Or what if I just do warrior one and I'm taking in the elements of embodying the energy and calling the imaginal in, in the yeah. way that the chapter invites. And I think I just want to be clear for listeners, you don't deal with 127 poses. You really deal with 18, one for each chapter. Um, so it, it's not an asana book. It's true. And there are variations sometimes yeah. of the pose. So you could do variations while you're doing the pose. But it's possible that people could read this book who weren't into yoga, and they would still get an awful lot out of it. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, you know, a lot of times when I teach yoga, it's on other programs I'm guiding that are not yoga programs. Yeah. So the yoga is just a class or two, and I'm just bringing the body in, but there's a lot of other dimensions. And I teach yoga a lot for people that don't do yoga or are new, are new to yoga, because it's instead of it being um, a practice that's really familiar, it's like a call, come back yeah. into your body. You can do this. This is, you know, there's just some basic movements. A lot can happen with for people through one pose, and a lot can happen through basic, simple movements. It doesn't have to be hard or complicated. I do a, um, a morning uh, reading meditation, and this morning, and I'm, I'm working my way through a book of Rainer Maria Rilke's poetry, and this is the poem that came out this morning, and I know you're going to know it. It's called Moving Forward, because I think this also helps us move into a, a discussion about yoga in that deepest sense. The deep parts of my life pour onward, as if the river shores were opening out. It seems that things are more like me now, that I can see farther into paintings. I feel closer to what language can't reach. With my senses, as with birds, I climb into the windy heaven out of the oak, and in the ponds broken off from the sky, my feeling sinks as if standing on fishes. It speaks of a kind, what I would call a kind of mystical union, and I was going to say with the earth, but really mystical union with all that is. And that would be a way of understanding yoga in its broadest, deepest meaning, wouldn't it? Yeah, relationship with all that is, which means um, our bodies. It means the earth. It means the dream time, the mystery, the spiritual, our soul, other souls. It's, you know, in other words, they all operate together. And so if there's a deepening into one, we bring it into the whole. But, but to be doing this work in the modern age is against a backdrop of what I think you even call it this in the book, a lost relationship. There's one point where you even make reference to the biblical story of the fall 
as mm. at least one interpretation, one filter we can use for that is seeing our lost relationship with the created world, with the natural world. How did we lose our way? Because it's like, this is almost countercultural what you're doing. Maybe I shouldn't even say almost. It's countercultural. Right. People day to day to day don't tend in mainstream culture to consult their bodies, to relate in a communal way with the natural world. What's your sense of how did we lose that connection? Yeah, um, great, great question. It, the, the, um, the biblical story I know I make reference to as a, as a fall out of the body and into the head. You know, it, right. and it's one way of looking at it. If you look at uh, our world, the story of our world, it might, you know, you could wonder if the biblical story wasn't just about Adam and Eve or two people, if it was actually the story of all the indigenous peoples on the land, which who we all come from, from different places that lived more in an embodied way with the earth, not to say that they're perfect or they didn't have their issues, not to over romanticize, but just to say that there's a way that they lived in relationship, talking to nature, at least most, maybe all, yeah. And also in their bodies, like on the land, and, and it was very connected. And then somehow you could say the fall might have been us coming out of that embodied relationship with with ourselves and with the earth and kind of coming into our heads, which seems like it describes how our culture has increasingly become over the last couple hundred years with industrialization. Um, and it, even more so now maybe with computers and cars that you could just operate up here and in some ways are expected to operate up here all the time, talking heads. Yeah. And that that's not really a life. That's not a, a soulful or a spiritual life. It's not even a embodied physical life. Yeah. One of the things you say is we must choose to look at and relate to the world as if it is ensouled. And this seems to me essential to what you're talking about. To think of the world and to approach it as if it has a soul. Now, when we say as if it has a soul, it means we begin with the assumption that it doesn't. But to cross that boundary as if the world has a soul to it having a soul, it requires an engagement of a part of us that we would tend to dismiss. That as children, we would make stuff up. And in the making stuff up in relation to the trees, that that tree is my mother or whatever, that we actually have a relationship that is more real than not doing it. You got to talk about ensoulment, which is one word, I guess. But I want to talk about the imaginal world, the imaginal process that takes us there. Great. Yeah, the imagination is key. And one piece of it is just honoring the imagination as, as a way of knowing as, a, you know, that it, that it, it like a lot of times thinking comes out in our culture as the way of knowing I think therefore I am and imagination gets relegated to the realm of children's stuff that you put away by the time you're in first grade after kindergarten and now it's time to think um, and nothing could be really further from the truth because if we're to have a soulful life soul speaks through image and also if we're to have a conversation with the land a lot of times that conversation takes place through a sense of play or imagination it's being able to go out into the world. And that's why it's great to think about having that conversation as if the world isn't sold, because you don't have to sit here and figure out, do I really believe that or don't I? What if I just play? What if I just go out and imagine, like like I was five or six, that I can talk to the rocks and, and the trees. I talked to I talked to everything when I was a kid. And I think it's a natural instinct when we're a kid yeah. until we get told that, oh, that's not real or that's not alive. And then we're like, well, oh, okay, yeah. I guess I shouldn't do that. So if we let ourselves go out and play, you can be surprised by what can happen, what can bubble up. Yeah. And, you know, I talk about uh, the surface imagination versus the deep imagination. And the surface imagination is often our mind is involved yeah. um, in creating something. And, and a lot of times artists, you know, the mind is partially involved and the imaginal is kind of involved. And the deep imagination is almost like when something just bubbles up that just doesn't make any sense. Like some words in our mind, some images, some memories, some sensations in your can be like, where did this come from? And why did this come here? And that usually is a sign that there's something here. And it can be hard for the ego because the ego often wants to just look away from what it doesn't understand. So as, as long as you turn toward it, you don't have to necessarily understand what nature said or come up with a meaning right away. But Listening for that surprise is a big part of listening to the deep imagination. Yeah. 
and, and trusting in some ways your instincts w with that about that there's something here worthy of my consideration. It's mm -hmm. not just silliness. Yeah, and in fact, we should talk about dreams because you give as much attention to dream work as you do with our uh, our bodily engagement with the natural world. Because you would say something similar about dreams, wouldn't you? That there's something there worth paying attention to, even if it seems silly to our ego. Exactly. A lot of times we wake up with dreams and they, quote, don't make sense. And sometimes the goal is, oh, I want to go tell somebody or I want to get it analyzed and tell me directly what it means. And that's generally not the way I work with dreams. Occasionally dreams can give meaning, like immediate meaning. So that does happen sometimes. But even when that happens, I think there's multiple layers to dreams. Yeah. So even if you think, I have people that come up to me and say, I had a dream, but I know what it means. And maybe, maybe there's, um, you know, part of that message is, is really discernible and understandable. But my guess is there's a lot that isn't. Yeah. And it's that willingness to be curious and go back in and see what you don't understand that you can really find at the multiple levels of more that wants to be said. And I do, I do treat the embodied dream images similar to nature beings, like a, a tree is, you know, that we might listen to for guidance might be similar to a tree in the dream world that comes to give us, to be in relationship with us. Do, do you think it comes from the same place, ultimately? Dream well, images um, and, and what we get from, from nature? I think that there's a connection. I, I don't like to simplify it by giving a definite, oh, yes. Um, but I, I think that, you know, we don't really know much about the other world except for what it shows us. And so, you know, there's the earth, there's the dream world. And I, I definitely think there's a relationship between them. They're, I'd say they're probably not exactly the same thing, but they are connected and they work, I think, with each other and on each other's behalf. And, and for me, sometimes it just feels clear that these ones are more intelligent than me. <laughs> it's like a, a humility. The, tr the forest is definitely more intelligent than I am. And even my dreams are more intelligent than I am. So yeah. um, sometimes I'll ask them particular questions and I want particular answers and they have no interest in giving me answers to the questions I have, but they do have interest in showing me things that, and having me experience things that they, that they, in their their, their agenda, so to speak, or, you know, that they yep. think would be good for me to see or experience. When we don't pay attention to dreams and to a uh, reciprocal relationship with the earth, it seems to me we're doing a disservice to the possibilities of our own healing. Because one of the things that the earth is able to offer us is a kind of reintegration of ourselves in the in the best sense bill plotkin who you know and and, uh, and you've worked uh, extensively with who describes himself which i love as a psychotherapist gone wild talks in one of his books about the limits of traditional talk therapy of of somebody sitting in an office in an enclosed space you know talking about myself and all my problems and and for bill what he was experiencing personally was yeah but it's out in the natural world where so much of this just sees it's not that it solves my problems they cease to be problems so there's something offered to us about our own healing isn't there in in the kind of yoga you're talking about definitely i would uh, totally agree i mean the, the, the coming into our bodies is healing, <laughs> just coming into our, just laying down and being present with ourselves and coming into a relationship with the land. It's so nourishing. I think one of the, for me, one of the most nourishing things I can do is just be in nature. That's it. Just be there present yeah. listening. And so when I, when I've worked with other people or myself, I, there's endless amounts of healing that happens. And there's also so much more too. You know, I work as a soul guide. And so a lot of times people are coming out and healing is part of the mix, healing and holding, but also they're listening for their, their destiny or their purpose from nature. Nature wants to help us be who we really are, I think, and our dreams too. They're guiding us in that direction to either be who we really are, which might be not just a specific answer or a specific role, but it, more, it might be more like living a mystery or living a line of poetry. Yeah, yeah. So it's the same thing that Bill Plotkin talks about when he defines soul as being uh, our ecological niche. It's where we fit 
in the universe. And you have your own language for that, but it's really saying the same thing. Beneath even our own healing is a sense of our own identity, who the world, the universe needs us to be. Can you say some more about that? Yeah, I mean, that's oftentimes what I say in the programs that I'm guiding to people is why you think you've come isn't why you really showed up. Your ego got you here and has its reasons, its things it might want to fix or its questions. But you might consider that a larger life is stalking you, a purpose is stalking you and has been for some time. It's been courting you, reaching out to you, maybe since you were a child, trying to get you to pay attention. And it, it's in, there's messages in our dream and our conversations with the land. There's messages in our bodies. And it's like the, the practice is, can I get quiet enough and open enough and court enough to listen? It's funny. I think you started out the conversation saying that I've done a lot of listening to people in my life and my different professions. And now I would say often what I teach is listening <laughs> is I teach <laughs> others to listen, not to necessarily to other humans, but to nature and to dreams, to their bodies, that to these other embodied intelligences. Yeah. And that they have larger stories and possibilities that just blow us away beyond what we could come up with by ourselves. But it sure takes a shift, not only in our perception, but also in the kind of, it's what in the Animus programs is called soul craft. It's like there's a whole new set of skills that we need to develop to be able to listen to those depths, isn't there? Yeah, it does. It takes a, a very big skill set. I mean, it's if you think about it, when I start in the basics, it's great. If In chapter two, deepen your ecological perception. I go very slow with how do we talk to the earth? How do we get ourselves ready? What are the steps? Because I think most of the time in the world, people's head is so filled with their lives and what, yeah. their, what they have to do and what they have to keep track of and their schedule and this problem and that problem that even if you go out into nature, it can be easy to just stay in your head trying to figure all that stuff out and almost the nature is a backdrop. And so the beginning of having that relation is, is, is a kind of a mindfulness that might drop our stories, our agendas, our minds, even who we think we are or what we think our life should be about and really be able to look around in the world and invite a kind of openness in ourselves where we can really listen. Yeah. It's deeply invitational. My experience of the soul craft intensive back in the fall in Kentucky set me on a new course that I, just what you were saying, that I didn't go for that. I didn't go for an encounter with what I would call the fierce divine feminine. And we'll come back and talk a bit about those archetypes. But, but it's, it set me on a course where it's all mystery. It's like, how do I just stay mindful and stay open to where this is leading me? And there, it feels like there is no path. There is no, no one can tell me where to go next. This is a deeply intuitive journey, which feels like, how could it be anything else? Yeah, it often feels, because of that, it often feels scary and exciting. Yeah. Like somehow following the thread of what's alive, it gives me vitality. It keeps me alive. Yeah. And yet it's also scary because what will be asked of me? What will happen? What will, what will I come to see? Yeah. Well, when you write in the book, later in the book, about some of the activism that you've been involved in, I know if I look that far ahead, and this is part of my own story, sort of coming up against yours. When I look that far ahead, I think, I don't know. I don't know if I could do that. Could I, could I stand in front of the bulldozer? I, I don't know. Well, that's, that's taking it way further than where it is right now. Right now is just the next step, which is all that's being required of me. Yeah, I think it's like we can't know exactly what it's supposed to look like on the other side. There are things that we can do to help the earth. And sometimes we just know I'm supposed to do that right now. And I know uh, a lot of people who do that, and I think that's great. And then sometimes we are in a journey with mystery where there's a lot of like slowing down and listening and not making a decision too quickly about what is the right action to take, but uh, allowing it to come from feeling that resonance with the earth. I mean, part of it is it's like when I had cancer, people took care of me. There wasn't any question. The odds were not high that I would recover, according to the medical doctors. But nobody said, oh, well, let's just roll her over because if we go through all this, it's probably not going to work anyway. They, they loved me and they wanted me to be healthy and lived. So they did. They researched and they did whatever they could to keep me alive. And I think when we feel the earth's pain, that we're invited to, to care for her like we might care for a family member. 
yeah. that it's not something that, um, and it's, it's intense. I mean, it's hard. What, what I'm suggesting taking in, it's not easy. And I don't necessarily imagine that somebody who hasn't taken in is going to read my chapter and then suddenly, Oh gosh, yeah, I got the whole thing. And it's all, it's hard to feel the immensity of what's happening to the earth. But, um, one thing I'm inviting is that that's part of the solution. It's not too different from what Joanna Macy said when she said that the deadening of our response is a bigger problem than the, than the actual problems themselves. So opening up our response makes us, you know, response able. We have to be feeling about what's happening to be able to know and come up with how we might respond. It's like we have to grieve with the earth before we can have any sense of what my role might be uh, to help protect and advocate for the earth, which is not a part of the journey we may want. But if we're going to go to the depths, it's inevitable we're going to feel pain. And some of that pain is going to be the grief of a world that we are destroying. Once we have been introduced to that grief and, and feel our connection with the earth, it creates a tension between us and the status quo of the world in which we live. Everything we do could be seen as contributing to the very thing that causes the earth grief. I agree with you. And it can be, you know, grief filled every time I go to the gas station and fill up my car. You know, yeah. I feel I feel my my participation. And when I'm on the computer or when I fly on a plane, it's not. Um, and there have been periods of my life, like I wrote about living at an eco lodge off grid, um, where um, it is amazing how that does change my personal relationship with nature. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to not drive and to just be living simply like that. It, it's, it's quite fabulous. I, I, I actually love it and prefer yeah. it. Um, yeah. And I know that, you know, me going to Costa Rica and living off grid isn't necessarily going to change the whole world. It's, there's a, a larger way of looking at this as a collective issue um, in systems of power and what's happening um, that seems like it's part of taking the whole thing into account. And I think sometimes we can fall into such depression, I know I can, and also shame around our part that it can be hard to then kind of come back and say, well, you know, what what can I do and how can I be present so that I can listen and potentially make some difference? A number of things that you talk about in the book, and this is, these aren't, these are not easy topics, but man, did they ever leap out at me in a, in a profound way. Um, likening some of our natural resource extraction from the earth to rape or forest depletion, as, as at one point you say, ripping out the lungs of the planet. Or the modern-day pornography epidemic as being the polar opposite to wild, sensuous eroticism, which connects rather than disconnects. And you, you talk about primal pleasure versus toxic mimicking, which I just think is, is brilliant. All of the, but do you want to talk about any of those? Because it, once we start seeing the world through that lens, we're not let off the hook anymore. Yeah, that's great. I think, I think that's, those are all important ones and I'm really glad you named them. Sometimes I feel like the, um, the, the spiritual or soul or, or, or personal growth movement can focus just on the positive story, right? Just on the mythos yeah. and and, you know, not look at the other. And there's a certain wonderfulness in that. It's great to be so enchanted by your mythos and the loveliness of nature that you, you're you just fully in that. And and I think that sometimes that does need to happen for, for periods of time. But to me, it seems like to just look at that into per- perpetuity, you know, is to neglect, a, like to seeing, seeing the harm. And one reason the harm can happen is it's a power dynamic is that we turn our attention away from it. So whether it's, you know, the rape of women or the ripping out of trees, you know, the concreating of wetlands or, you know, the mining in deep seas. I mean, it's like we, we, we have to, it seems like part of the work. And I know part of my own calling is to be able to hold the tension of both the myth mythic world and dreams and soul and the possibilities that emerge from there, as well as the, the heartbreak and the harm that is happening. Yeah. We have to talk about the archetypal feminine. Yeah, definitely. Let's let's talk about it. I definitely delve into it in my book. And it feels like, just to start off in our culture, we always say that there's a toxic masculine culture. 
which one might define as um, a focus on um, making money, um, violence, objectifying women. And there's also a toxic feminine presence, you know, I would say that is like yielding um, and submissive to the harm. And a man can embody the toxic feminine and a woman can embody the toxic masculine. I mean, it's not about our, it's our, not about our, gender or not about yeah. our sex, like whatever yeah. our body is, we might have, um, both toxicities in us, or we might have, um, just one more than the other. The, the, these are energies that exist in all of us. And also there's, um, the sacred masculine and the sacred feminine. And a lot of people cringe at when I brought up, people talk about the sacred feminine, yeah. which I think yeah. my book is a lot about all these practices of being receptive, you know, yeah. listening to the womb, like the creative energy, um, listening to dreams, nurturing, nurturing, gestational. And, but there is also a sacred masculine energy and people like, that's what I'm saying. People cringe because they associate the masculine with, with the harm and with the toxicity, but just like there can be toxic masculine, toxic feminine, there can be sacred masculine and sacred feminine. And, but I often think that, you know, one of the aspects of the journey isn't only to have soul encounter and soul initiate be soul initiated and live our soul purpose, which is definitely an important part of the journey, but it's also to find this union in, within us between the sacred masculine and sacred mm-hmm. feminine, that mm-hmm. there's a romance happening. And that's part of the, our muse um, directed work. And yeah. it's also part of bringing that into balance in the world. In my um, ancestry, uh, you know, in the Norse mythology, that's a big thing that they talk about that, when the, the the masculine sky gods are out of balance with the feminine earth spirits, the world is in havoc and there needs to be an apologies for things out of balance and, and, a, and a being brought back to balance into balance yeah. so that it's happening in the spirit world. Some people say it's already happened in the spirit world, but it needs to happen in our, in our physical world. And so I think somehow bringing that back into balance in ourself and also tracking patterns collectively and bringing it into balance collectively are part of it. Uh, as well. I, I think the, 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 you know, the sacred masculine to me has a lot of like uh, protective energy. I think women, yes. women have that energy too. the, the ferocity that I bring up the feral female ferocity. Yes. Um, yep. so it's not to say that women don't have protective energy or aren't strong, but there's, uh, uh, somebody once told me a little image that's really stayed with me, but when things are in balance, there's a circle and the masculine are at the edge of the circle protecting and the women are inside and the children are inside. And so, there's a there's a there's a, a way that that energy of strength creates a safety and a, and a capacity to deepen for the feminine and care for the children, yeah. which is partly what we can see the trouble is you know when we see what happens to children in our world and uh, that that's part of us seeing what's out of balance. Talk to me about the love warrior for the earth. I feel both the masculine and the feminine archetypes in that image because part of the male archetype is a warrior on behalf of others. It's and, and Robert Bly, I remember, did a lot of work on this uh, back in the in the 90s of recovering something of what you might call the sacred male of what do we do with these energies that that uh, we experience as as archetypally masculine. Um, but it also seems that the ferociousness you talk about in the feminine archetype they all come together when we're fighting on behalf of somebody else. I, I love how you bring the question about the term love warrior and am I bringing the masculine and feminine into that concept? And I, I think that I am, but it, it has both energies in it. And I love bringing, I wanted to bring the warrior back in because a lot of times in our culture, warrior energy is considered toxic yes. uh, in general. It's, I mean, I've even listened to patriarchal, um, talks about, you know, the warrior energy is an energy we have to get rid of we move beyond. And I don't really, I don't totally agree. I do agree on some element. I mean, the masculine men in the world have been harmed by being sent to war for causes that, you know, and, and that are crazy and, and hurting people. And obviously, and they've been forced to go to war. And so obviously I'm not speaking about warrior and that energy sending our young men into violent situations for no good reason. Um, I'm, I'm actually, but I am, but I don't think that we should throw away the concept of the warrior as, as an, as an overall unhealthy concept. In fact, I would say that our world is missing warrior energy and that's why things can go on, keep getting harmed, you know, in some ways, because there's a lack of standing up for. And so the love warrior energy is kind of trying to bring a healthy archetype of the warrior. And it is one that listens to the, that love that comes from a place of love and listens to the feminine 
uh, a merging of dreams for, for guidance around where to be and how to be a warrior, but that this warrior energy that's willing to fight and stand up for is actually vital to our healing and the healing of the planet. Yeah. You write very personally, Rebecca, in this book, and, and, and very vulnerably. And that, that necessarily means whenever we share something of our lives and we're vulnerable about it, there's the opportunity for that to touch the lives of others. So there were a number of moments uh, as a reader when I had to just stop and breathe and take, because your story was now touching my story. Mm-hmm. And and I don't I don't want to go into depth about any of these. I think people can read it in the end for themselves. But um, I'll tell you. Here's a few examples. The conversation you had with your mother, when she expressed, in essence, which is what none of us want to hear, her disappointment that your life wasn't what she wanted it to be, mm-hmm. and th- the depth of that, where we realize all parents are wounded. All parents have an unlived life, which we automatically transfer to our children. And it was such a human moment. And you're very gracious about it. I mean, there's no judgment when you're writing about it. But that caught me. And I thought, this is just so true. And it was be tr- it's going to be true for, most, for people who, who read this. And then there were a number of conversations you, that you report. And again, you don't judge the conversations. You just report them. But two of them sounded an awful lot like mansplaining to me. Mm-hmm. Um, one was... Uh, talking with your friend about uh, rampant pornography and his saying that, well, it's really just an expression of diversity and, and choice. And you don't, you know, you don't diss him, but you just, you just put the conversation out there in the same way that you do about the younger man who is saying that uh, we shouldn't be bent all out of shape about the earth. You know, Gaia will look after herself. The earth will heal itself. Like, so you have these conversations which are deeply and broadly human experiences. What was it like including those? Each time you included one of those, you're showing something of your own vulnerability of something that was hurtful to you. I think dialogue is sometimes one of the best ways to share things rather than just tell my side of the story, but hear yeah. the other voice and hear the hear the response. I, I actually love dialogue. It was probably most vulnerable to share about my mom because I, I love her dearly and I didn't want her to you can't, you can't hide the identity. Your mom is your mom and everyone knows. So I was a little bit like cautious about that. And, you know, I think even beyond that moment, I grew to understand, well, it makes total sense. She wanted a daughter who would go to the mall and shop and be highly involved in her life. And I'm this woman that's out here in the wilderness doing her own thing. I mean, you know, it's not so personal. It's just, it's, it's true for her. Um, but, but you're right when we're coming into that and it's a, it's a, it's a childhood thing over and over again that we get that message about, not being able to be ourself or something's wrong with ourself. It's, it is, it's so, so painful. So it was, it was kind of healing to write it, to try to write it in a way that honored my mom and also our lineage, our female lineage. Yeah. Um, Cause her, you know, she had her own relationship with her mom and then my grandmother before that. So a lot of our relationship had to do with really the, the whole thing. Yeah. So that, you know, and then the, the ones about the, the ones that have to do with like the state of the planet, you know, those are conversations I get into quite a lot. And I'm always fascinated by people's response. I'm kind of like my jaw drops, like really? And so putting them into dialogues as a way to help communicate, I feel like, you know, where people might normally have those kinds of responses. I think a lot of times people don't necessarily think about it very deeply. And then they just have a, a sort of a, an answer that allows you to just not feel about it too much. Like it'll be all right. Um, and then, uh, yeah, the, uh, the one about pornography, um, that, that's a, a conversation I've engaged with a whole lot. So that was also a little bit tenuous because I know that in the liberal world, which is where most of my readers probably come from, um, that, that pornography is pretty much considered fine. Um, I mean, I've had many conversations with people and it's not considered a really big deal. And to make a big deal about it is considered like kind of way different. So there was a bit of edginess in, in, in me putting, adding that into the conversation. And sometimes I got direction like, well, why don't you just talk about what wild yoga is instead of talking about what it's not? But it was just one place where I felt like there's so much confusion and such an energy suck into that world that I really did need to highlight the difference between the two. Yeah. So I, I want to come back and talk just a bit about your writing of this book, because it, it, without it being chronological, 
it does describe a kind of soulful descent, uh, your own, of finding yourself more and more at home. Well, I think you said from as a child you were this, more and more at home in the natural world and in communion with the natural world. Here's what I wondered about as I read that. Is there not also, in the way of prophets everywhere, in the way of Frodo in The Lord of the Rings, you can never quite go home again. Once you've seen a certain amount, like Frodo couldn't go back to quaffing ale with his pals in the Shire after he'd had that experience of total destruction and what that looks like. Is this, do you find, a very solitary journey? Even though you talk about lots of networks of friends and lots of people, but it takes you out of the mainstream. It does, yeah. I mean, there's things that you can't talk about. I mean, it's kind of a wild thing that I wrote about it because I'm talking about things that for many years I just didn't talk about because it would be like, well, people won't get that and there's no place to bring that into the conversation. And so it, it felt edgy to write about those kinds of things. And it does feel like a very solitary journey in many ways. Whenever you, to me, whenever you see things that no one else can see, it's solitary yes, and, and, and it's hard to explain. And there are things that move you deeply that motivate your life deeply. And if you can't talk about it to loved ones, there's a, there's a, there's a painfulness to that that happens. And that's what I have found on the journey in the, with the muse. And, you know, writing a book is all about saying the thing that nobody said. Yeah. It's all about trying to put into words and explain some sense of reality or way that you see that maybe is not people aren't talking about or think that's out there. And to explain it in such a way that they can get it. Yeah. And yet there's a huge risk that they won't get it and that they'll just make fun. And, and I think it can become challenging the whole time of the journey because the muse is always giving us new visions. At least that's how I'm experiencing it. So even if there's one set a group of people or some people that could relate to talking to the earth, for me, this is an example. You know, there's a group of people that I have, they can relate to listening to dreams and talking to the earth and soul. So we're really at home because we share that view of reality. Um, but then when I start looking at dynamics of power and the harm that's happening, uh, nobody, I don't feel like it's like I have to find a whole nother set of people that relate to that. And it's painful for me to exist where I can't talk about that. Yeah. But sometimes it's so offensive to people to bring it up that it feels like, I can't talk about it. Yeah. I'm reminded that Carl Jung, in the opening pages of what we know as the Red Book, which was his journal, his personal journal from a, a dark uh, time, he contrasts what he calls the spirit of the depths and the spirit of this time. Mm -hmm. And he felt he was being called, being pulled into an awareness of the spirit of the depths which the spirit of this time doesn't want to know about. So it feels like that. It feels like there's another voice calling to you. And mm -hmm. as I read the book, it's calling to me too. Mm -hmm. There's that, that, and therefore encouraging me to take another deeper step in my own journey. And, and that's the courage of writing what you, what you just wrote. Great. Yeah. I, I love that, that saying about the depths and that it's a whole other world that people don't want to see. And, and it's also it's also a world that gives us so much uh, power and resource too. So it feels like such a loss to not turn toward it. Yeah, Rebecca, the book is called "Wild Yoga: A Practice of Initiation, Veneration, and Advocacy for the Earth" by New World Library. By the time this our conversation uh, comes out, the book will have been in the world for five days. Where can people find it? Um, well, there's lots of places to find it. Uh, you can find it on, you know, Barnes and Noble, New World, New World Library, Amazon, Indie Publishers. You could even um, write me if you want an email. I'm going to put something on my website to allow people to buy it. But for now, you could just email me if you wanted a signed copy. That will, of course, take a little longer. If you want it fast, I would just order it straight from straight from the other kind of book websites. Yeah. And if if, if somebody has... Uh, if their interest has been piqued in your work, you also have your own website. I do. Yep. RebeccaWildBear.com. So just like it sounds, just my name, all lowercase, no spaces, RebeccaWildBear.com. And you can read more about uh, 
the wild yoga book and the other work that I do. Well, you have gifted the world with this book because it's beautifully written and therefore engaging uh, for the reader. It's courageous, as we were just talking about going places where some people may not want to go. It's inspiring for some of us who are on our journey and need to know, like, just keep going one step at a time. And in the best sense, I found it a disturbing book. Like, it doesn't <laughs> allow you to stay where you are. So all I get, So thank you. Thank you for writing the book, but also thanks for coming to the cave to talk with me about it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, and there is a, there's a yoga practice video on my website, too, if you want to experience Excellent. But thank you so much for saying that. I love that you say it's disturbing. That probably sounds crazy, but it is meant to give, give support and give practices and give direction and give ways to listen, but also to be disturbing, you know, kind of like a, a wake up. And that's in part coming from my own muses and conversation of how I've been disturbed yeah. from my yeah. own life to look yeah. at this, look at that. So thank you so much for inviting me onto the cave. What a cool name for uh, a program, you know, to be yeah. in the cave with you exploring these these questions and, and my writing. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining me for my conversation with Rebecca Wildbear. Coordinates for her book and for her other work are found in the show notes. So what do you think? Are you drawn to a practice that empowers us to learn the mysteries of the earth, the deep revelations of dreamland, and the wildness of our own nature, so we can live a meaningful life of soulful service? Leave your thoughts in the Facebook group The Mystic Cave, or write to me personally at mysticcaveman53 at gmail.com. Next time, I speak with someone who beats a similar rhythm, but on a different drum. Julian Lepage is the owner and operator of Circles of Rhythm. He offers drumming circles for mental health, body connection, and community building. It's all about finding your rhythm. I'm Brian Pearson. This is The Mystic Cave. But I still